You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man um, set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I seen such faith. And when those who had seen him had been sent, returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon after, afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Well, if I were to ask you, where have you seen God be faithful in your life? You might give an answer. Let's say, let's say that um, you were looking for a job and you've been praying and then you now have a job and God has provided. And so I might say, have you seen God be faithful? And you might say, he provided the job for me. And <clears throat> I get that. But at the same time, all of a sudden, what about the person sitting next to you that goes, I never got a job. I didn't get a job. I'm still flailing around trying to find a job. Does that mean that God is not faithful? See, about the only way that we know to talk about the faithfulness of God is when he provides certain things in our life. My kid got healthy. I got a job. I, um, whatever, some blessing that hit our life. And so we use this term, the faithfulness of God. The problem is, what if someone's rock bottom? What if those things didn't happen? Does that now challenge the faithfulness of God? Well, that's one of the things that we're gonna see today about God's 
faithfulness. Nikki and I have been actually talking about this um, quite a bit recently. This is Luke's gospel. And if you remember the reason that Luke wrote the gospel, we should probably reset because we started this book like four years ago. Um, Luke's gospel, he says that he's written it for a guy with the, the most Greek name ever, Theophilus. He's writing it to a Greek audience. And it's, he does it so it says you can be certain about the things that you have heard. That's the word asphaltos, like asphalt, where you, he's saying you can stand firmly in the things that you have heard, Theophilus, because Luke is going to go back and he's going to detail it and he's going to give facts and data and stories and interview people and all sorts of stuff to say, so you can stand firm. Now, one of the nice things about teaching a gospel like this and the story like this, whenever there's narrative, you can really start, one of the ways you can just start to understand um, more of what's happening is to just really, um, really like dive in like you're there and really start to understand the different characters in the story. So you heard the first one is this centurion. He is a, um, he's non-Jewish, we'll see in just a minute. So he's Gentile. And they were, they were pretty high up in the Roman army. And um, the, the word centurion, is, it comes from the same place we get the word century. And so if you think how many troops did they oversee, you would think 100, but it's actually more like 80. So go figure that one out. I don't know. But they, they oversee, we'll say, 80 to 100 troops. And the centurion had other people underneath him. And the pay gap from the people right below him to the centurion that oversaw these troops was pretty significant. So this is somebody who's pretty high up in Roman culture, in the Roman army. He, um, he's doing pretty well. And so what we're seeing is the message has gone previously to fishermen. It's gone to the poor it's gone to people who maybe aren't as influential. And now all of a sudden in Luke's gospel, we start to see this is not just a message for a certain group of people. This starts to reach high up Romans, this Roman centurion. He's a man of means, we'll see in just a minute as well. The gospel is starting to go there as well. And so if you remember last week, we talked about the sermon on the plain where Jesus has gone through the Beatitudes and build your house on the, on the rock, not the sand. And he's been teaching and teaching and teaching. And then it says, after he finished all his sayings in verse one, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and Matthew's gospel gives even more detail there saying he was paralyzed. And then it says, who was highly valued by him, meaning the centurion. So he sends emissaries to Jesus, we'll see, and they go to Jesus and they say, the centurion is back here and this guy is highly valued by him. The slave in his house is highly valued by him. And so the question is, what does it mean that he's highly valued? And two things generally come up. One is, well, he makes me a lot of money. He takes a lot of things off my plate that I don't want to do. It's really good to have him around the house, like a very impersonal way of looking at him. He makes me money. It would almost be like, um, Jesus, could you come heal my oxen in the field? He broke his leg. I need it healed because he's my means of revenue and all that at my, for my house. That's not what he means. And you'll see this as we go through it. And there's a couple of reasons why when it says who, um, who is very highly valued by him, it means what you probably think it means, which is this centurion loves his servant, the guy who's working with him in the house. He loves him. These are stories of compassion back to back next to each other. And then as we'll see, when you look through the story of the centurion, it does sound like a very personal, caring, tender thing. And then you look at it from the other gospels that have it as well. And it's pretty obvious that he's saying, I love this guy. Can Jesus come and heal him and help him? 
Um, it's clear that he is a, 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 a Gentile, and it looks like he is exercising some sense of faith. It's starting here without ever having met Jesus. Now think about this. A Gentile who has not met Jesus is about to exhibit faith. That's really good for us. I don't know if people here have Jewish backgrounds. Most of us have, don't. And so we're Gentiles who have not walked and talked with Jesus at the time that he lived on the earth. This guy's honestly in a little bit of a similar boat. And so what it says is when they came to Jesus, these are emissaries that came from him, that he sent elders of the Jews to go and talk to Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, listen, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He is worthy to have this happen. He deserves it. He deserves for you to heal his servant, this man that he loves. And then it says the reason, for he loves our nation. He loves the Jewish people. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, this is interesting. Someone who previously had not exercised faith built their synagogue. You hear about Rome and the Jews and they hated each other. And Rome really hated anybody that, that stood in contrast to Rome. And then here they are going, here's a Roman centurion and he helped us build the synagogue. Well, previously, in fact, Caesar Augustus explicitly says this. Um, Josephus records it. He says that he, um, these are my words now, Caesar Augustus says he likes synagogues. He, he likes the followers of God in his culture. He likes the synagogue. He says that it, uh, it helps maintain order and it brings morality into the culture. The followers of God do that. And so Caesar Augustus actually said, this is a good thing. You know when Rome started not liking the followers of God, the Jews in the first century? When they said, here's the one among you, the king of the Jews. Well, they don't like that because they would say there's nobody higher than Caesar. But they actually, if you look at it, I mean, they, they, they got along. This is a guy who, <clears throat> who's not Jewish, but he, he looks and it says he loves our nation. This is why we know he's a Gentile. He's probably not a, a proselyte, like a convert yet, because if, they were, if, if he was, they would come to Jesus and, not, and they would say, can you do this for him? He loves our God. He, he's one of us. And instead it says he loves our nation. He's respectful to us. He actually supports us, even though he doesn't maybe believe everything that we believe. You could, not a great analogy, but you could almost think, I know we have some people here that have been deployed in different cultures, and maybe at first you get deployed, and you're, or maybe even just traveling too, but if you're deployed and you're there in a different culture and you look and you go, oh my goodness, people, people actually do this. This is, a, this is a, a unique way of living, some custom that they have, and you might go, I'm not really going to do that. But then if you're there over time, you might start to go, I see why they do that. And there's actually something kind of noble and, and, and nice about that. This might be a way to think of it, that here is this Roman centurion who is there among the Jews and going, the way you conduct yourself makes me have respect for you and for what you're doing. And so it seems like it's just a um, sort of a cultural appreciation from this Roman centurion for the time being. But there seems to be from the state and from, I'll say the church, but the state and um, the followers of God in the first century, they seem to have this respect for one another. How's that going today? There's a lot of reasons. It seems, honestly, doesn't it almost seem like an impossibility today? There's several reasons. We contrast more and more 
with the prevailing thought and culture, don't we? The gap is getting wider and wider. The other big thing is um, bad news tends to travel fast and good news doesn't really travel. If, um, if there's, say, a... Uh, if pastors fall, it's all over Twitter. Pastors are faithful. No one hears it. It is interesting. Um, one, one of the things I think is at the root of this, um, like you, you understand that lost people will look at Christians and go, why do you guys fight so much? Just like internally. Like, don't you read the same Bible? Why do you have a thousand different denominations? Why don't you just read the Bible and just do what it says and then be unified? I've told you before, at my last church, I had, um, we had to sue the presbytery that oversaw us in order to protect the flock of people that we were called to protect. You talk about competing values, trying to figure out what the heck you're supposed to do. I was actually in the conversations and before I said, no way should we do this. And then I was, I was squarely on the fence of what we should do. And luckily it wasn't my decision but we ended up having to do it. And of course, what happened? The presbytery publishes all these things and slams the very church that they're supposed to oversee and care for. And I remember sitting at the meeting and just going, this is why the world hates us, because of this. Does this ever happen? Let me, let me try and give a little reason, background as to why this might happen, why, why you do see all the varying views out there. Um, if you think about it, the first 15 or so hundred years of Christianity, where did truth come from? Well, it came from the Bible, but it also came from the church. And the church controlled truth. And you really, you, you really weren't allowed to believe it unless I told you it was okay to believe. And so they would say that the that truth in our the the it's our ancestry as well. The Roman Catholic Church came ex cathedra, which means from the seat or from the throne. And it's the Pope would speak or someone in the magisterium, the teaching ministry of the church would speak and they would speak for God. And so what happens? You have very clear truth. What is true? What is false among followers of God in the church? It was very clear. That's why when I, um, I preached on Mary a while back, I called several popes, or not several popes, several um, uh, <laughs> Priest, Catholic priest, there we go. I called several Catholic priests, very different, called several Catholic priests, and their answers were remarkably similar. And if you think if you called a bunch of, a bunch of Protestant churches, you might get some varying answers. Well, the reason is, is because there is doctrine that has been handed down, and there's something nice about the uniformity of that. But at the same time, we know the danger of that as well. In fact, it happened in the old Catholic church. I was just listening to a podcast about the, the Reformation, because that's what pastors do for fun, I guess. I don't know. I was listening to it, and, uh, and I was reminded of indulgences. You, you pay, and your loved one that's in purgatory will now be able to get into heaven. So the problem is that all of a sudden, if that becomes corrupt, it just infects everything. And so what did Protestants do? Well, the priest isn't the only one that can understand the Bible, interpret the Bible, but now we talk about the priesthood of every believer. So I'm not the only one worthy to stand up and to hear from God reading the scriptures. And what's the danger? People go, oh, good. I can believe whatever I want to believe. And so things start to ripple out. I'm very much oversimplifying, but you can see the tension that we live in. We don't want one person to just declare this is it and you have to do this and nobody but Jesus gets to do that. 
And at the same time, we see the inherent danger of this happening. And by the way, in my, in my experience, for what it's worth, the people who do the least like hard work in Bible study tend to be some of the loudest voices in the culture, which is one of the reasons why it, be, it seems like there's such a disparity. And then some people that do really, really hard work to really go, what is God saying here? What does he mean? Well, they're listening to, you know, your Tim Kellers and just reading all this, these uh, great books of great minds and great theologians and naturally feel a little unworthy to be such a loud voice because they go, oh, you have so much to learn. And so a lot of times what happens is you have people with with lower understanding of what the Bible actually says, but feeling empowered to be able to say, this is what the Bible says. And people who really um, you know, respectfully with awe come to the scriptures and, and those people tend to go, gosh, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm humbled by this. I mean, how loud should I really be with this? Like, I feel like I still have so much to learn. And so what happens is all that to say, you're out in the world and there's all this disparity among, not, not, hopefully not like the main things, I'm not talking about that. But when the world looks at Christians, what do they expect? Don't you guys all read the same Bible? Should, shouldn't you all be 100% on the same page? And I get the nuance of, of what it means that... Um, that God speaks to us as individuals and also in community, but he speaks as individuals. And I also know the dangers of that. So that we say, we go and we read the scriptures. I'm, I'm here praying like crazy, trying to say, I believe this is what the scriptures teach for us today. Here's why, here's who said it. Here's people that have gone before us. And I know at the end of the day, I don't have the, the lock and key on all truth. I have said things from here, I'm sure are wrong. And so what happens? Do televangelists give Christians back in the 80s, probably especially a bad name? You bet. There were a few televangelists. There were thousands of faithful preachers who made the news, televangelists, because they did a bad thing. For all the pastors that have private jets that might make you mad, there's plenty of us that use frequent flyer miles and fly coach. In fact, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. For every pastor that falls because he's unfaithful to his wife, there's got to be hundreds and hundreds that are faithful to their spouse. But what makes the news is the negative stuff. And so let me, let me say, because that, that's how our culture works. And so if you're here, honestly, you might even be a Christian and you go, oh yeah, I get that. D do you see any people in the public square that you go, hey, it's a free country, do whatever you want, but please don't tell anybody that you're a Christian because the world is going to look at them and go, you Christians, and lump us in with somebody that's making a public shame of this, but saying that they believe it. So let, let me offer it like this. <clears throat> When you, uh, it, it is easy to get down on Christianity and followers of Jesus. The reason is not because the data is in your favor generally. It's because the things that the world puts out are the negative things about people that say they're followers of Christ. And so there might be some people here that are going, I've been very hurt by the church, hurt by Christians. It is the most disappointing thing to see a Christian fall like that. Can I say as a Christian, it hurts me too. I hate it. I hate it. 
I hate it for them. I hate when people stand up and they say, I'm a Christian, and then they blast somebody that's made in the image of God. That's really difficult for me as a Christian. Know that for every one of those, there's hundreds that are trying to be faithful to God. We just don't make the news. And then for all of us as Christians, you also need to know that because of the time we live in, be careful. Because one little mistake can have a huge ripple effect. It, it might just be one thing that you do, but this person has maybe all these other inputs of a Christian said they were loving and then they did this thing that's horrible. They said they were loving and they did this thing. They said they were loving and it's now all the hypocrisy and you might have that little much, but it's adding up in their mind. And so we need to be very careful about where we live. It is difficult now to be a Christian fully devoted to Jesus Christ, fully devoted to the word of God and be fully welcomed by the culture. In fact, I'd say it doesn't happen. At any rate, verse six, and it says something that seems like a bit of a throwaway verse, but look at this, and Jesus went with them. Now, we're Westerners. <clears throat> Jesus has just had a crowd of people, and this guy comes who's never seen Jesus, or he sends the Jewish leaders, never seen Jesus, and he goes, my slave back here is sick. Can you come to him? And as Westerners, we might go, Jesus, hang on just a minute. You just had a crowd of people around you. Why don't you tell them no, but you can invite them to come here and hear me? Or, hey, you're a centurion? You'll see in a minute, he goes, I can tell my soldiers what to do. Why don't you go tell those soldiers to come here and I'll preach the good news to them? Like that would be much more efficient, wouldn't it? And it says Jesus went with them. This one guy. Do you think, come on, fellow Westerner here, do you not think that Jesus would have had maybe a use of his time where more people could have heard the good news instead of just going to talk to one? Today, we'd say, well, you should start a podcast. You should have a YouTube channel. You should start a megachurch, something like that. <clears throat> Jesus, you should, you should make a capital of Christianity right here. You should preach to a whole bunch of people, Jesus. That's way more important. That's a better efficient use of time. And what we see from this, when the very fact that Jesus went with them to this one person, we see that Jesus was much more concerned with, an, um, with the right use of time instead of an efficient use of time. Oh, we're about efficient, efficiency, aren't we? How many people and how short of a time? Great. Jesus goes, I don't think about that. What is the right use of my time? And it's to go and heal this person. Um, just a quick application here I wanna make. Um, when people, I'm gonna just keep saying this. I've said it many times. People come into my office and one of the first things they always say is, or an email starts this way, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're busy. Please don't say that you're busy too. Come and talk. This is, this is life. I watch Jesus being horribly inefficient, but being faithful. We have prayer partners before and after every service. I had one person one week, oh, they might be here. One person one week that said, uh, I, I don't want to go to the prayer partner because, and there was a concern, like I'm taking from someone else and somebody else would want to be prayed with. And so I don't want to. And I happened to know that that week, nobody went up at that service to go play with the prayer partner. I said, go, go pray with them. If you've got a need, that's, they're, they're like, they're professional prayers, man. They're really good. Go, well, we don't pay them, but they're really good prayers. Go pray with them. Go just share with them. 
And we think about efficiency, efficiency, and we go, people matter. And that's what we're seeing from Jesus. And look what he says. When he was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Remember the leaders of the Jews came and said, he is so worthy because he's such a good, righteous person. It's a very Jewish way of thinking in the first century. And what does this Gentile say? I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He says, therefore, I didn't presume to come to you but just say the word and let my servant be healed. This is humility demonstrated by this man. Remember um, earlier in Luke's gospel when he's out with Peter and the fisherman and he says, um, he says, throw the, throw the nets in, or go back out in the deep and cast the nets. And they're like, oh, we've been fishing all night, but at your word, we'll do it. And they go out and it says the nets start to break. And you remember what Peter does? He falls down in front of Jesus and says, depart from me, I am a sinful Man, Luke is interested in demonstrating to his Gentile audience humility before God. So I don't know if this is a profession of faith this guy's making, but he's certainly giving indications that he's starting to trust Jesus and who he is. <clears throat> then he says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And what he's saying here is very important. He's saying, I am under authority, and I have authority over people that are under me. And he's saying, Jesus, you're here under the authority of God. And because you're under the authority of God, like the centurion would speak for Rome, he's saying, you are under the authority of God, the Father himself. And therefore, sickness should obey you. You are more powerful. You have authority to heal, is what he's saying. And now he's going to give this uh, condom, <clears throat> excuse me, commendation. Big, important shift there. Verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and picture him walking with all these Jewish people that just said, hey, he's so worthy. And then he hears from these other emissaries and they're saying, oh, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. Just say the word. And you're a person under authority. All, all sickness and death and disease, they all answer to you, Jesus. And he turns and he stops and he tells them, I tell you, not even in all of Israel have I found such faith. Not even among the Jewish people have I found this faith, is what he's saying. And so this is Luke writing to the Greeks that, are, that have this idea of these Jews are very religious followers of God, and then we're the Greeks, we're the Gentiles, we're late to the game, so we're down here. And Luke is starting to unpack for them, no, that is not how it works. In fact, he uses somebody who's Greek or who's Gentile to rebuke a group of people that are Jewish, that are not following him. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Here's the point of it. This is from Daryl Bach, who I think has one of the best commentaries on this. He says, um, <clears throat> he says, above all, what's clear from this account is that Jesus has authority from God that extends over space, distance, and disease. The healing he gives reveals the authority he has to reverse the condition of those in need. He need not be physically present to respond, and anyone can share in the benefits that Jesus offers if faith is exercised. The centurion's faith is an example that should not stand alone, and he says Luke asks his reader to have the faith of a centurion. Luke asks his reader to have the faith of the centurion. This is a Gentile who's not seen Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy, but you have authority over this. And it's not just over sickness. 
Look what happens next. He's raising a widow's son. He goes to a funeral procession. Soon after, he went in a town called Nain, a very small town. They estimate about 200 people in the town. They had a gate out front, and a lot of them are built to, um, for, for protection to keep people out. It was such a small town that when they look at it, it looks like it was just ornamental, like, well, we should have a gate. And they threw a gate up, and that was it, because they knew they were going to get overrun because there's not many people there. They went to, he went to a town called Nain. His disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So this is the funeral procession in, uh, in the town. They would carry the body outside and generally bury them in a family cemetery. And so this woman is widowed and she is childless. So an orphaned parent, if you will. Jesus walks into the deepest of despair and then his actions reversed the mood. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. <clears throat> then he came up and he touched the bear and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. He is now ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. Cleanliness is next to godliness, I guess, except when there's compassion involved. And he goes up and he touches the casket that's carrying this, this uh, dead person. And he looks and says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. He's talking, he's giving evidence that he's alive. And then it says, fear seized them. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. There's a parallel story, Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. They did very similar things that they would go in. They would have to go be with the person. They would have to call out to God to heal them. There's examples of they would have to lay on them three times or they would have to lay hands on them for a long time to heal them. And in all those instances, they, they're resuscitated, so to speak. And they do something to show, like one of them eats, one of them says he sneezes seven times, like they, wait, they, they, they come back to life and they give a demonstration that they are alive. And then what happens is it says Elijah or Elisha gives them to their mother. So this is a parallel story here, but notice Jesus, can do, he could do this by just speaking. Jesus doesn't have to go in the name of, in the power of God. He just says, I say to you, I say to you, arise. God has visited his people. Now here, <clears throat> well, this is a foreshadowing about Jesus having power over death. That Jesus is gonna rise from the grave. And the point of this text is not only that he can overcome disease, but he also has power over death. Notice the great power he displays with such ease. Hey, get up. Get up. Here you go. Here you go, Mom. He gives the kid back to her. He gives actual comfort, and this reveals his divinity. But I want to come back to my first question about God being faithful. I'm going to encourage you to really use that word carefully. Um, if I don't have a job and I get a job, God might be faithful that he listened to me, that he heard me, something like that. But when you say faithfulness, what it means is God has promised something and he is faithful to fulfill that. God never promised me a job. God never promised me my health. God never promised me money. God never promised me food. God never promised me happiness. God never promised me freedom. These things are not 
promised. And so when we talk about those things, we should think in terms of God is good, God God is merciful, God is giving, like those words make sense. But to say God is faithful means he has promised something and he is faithful to deliver on that promise. In other words, we don't get to take things that we think God should do for us, throw it up at him, and then if he does it, he's not faithful. And if he does it, he is faithful. What is one of the things that God has promised? It is demonstrated right here in this story that Jesus Christ is victorious over sin, Satan, and you see it, death. That this is not the end. That the very thing that strikes terror into the hearts of people all over and all around us, death. The great hope of the Christian is Jesus Christ is greater than death and he has overcome it. That is the promise of God that we can take to the bank. And one day when we are with him, and we are living forever with him in eternity, we can say, God, you are faithful because you have promised this. This is the Christian hope that we have. The worst thing that could happen to us, we have no reason to fear it. Christ has overcome it. It says the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You bet it did. May we be people that spread that all over this area, that they know the goodness of Jesus Christ, who's greater than sin, Satan, and death. 